Guys, turn to Acts chapter 14. We're turning the page. We're going to a new chapter in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 14. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7. And while you're getting there, I'm going to give you a really brief, a really brief synopsis of where we've been because most of you guys have been tracking with us um, already. Uh, Paul and Barnabas have been sent out from a church, the, the church in Antioch, uh, to preach the gospel. And so they go out, and they've made a few stops along the trip so far. They've gone to the island of Cyprus. They made a quick stop after that in Perga to let John Mark head back to Jerusalem. And then they went to Antioch and Pisidia, where they've been during our sermons the last couple of weeks that Sam has preached. He's chopped that up into two different, two different sermons. And last week, we see that they are persecuted once again. They shake the dust off of their shoes from that town, and they move on. And today, they're coming to the city of Iconium. And that's, that's it. That's where we're at. I'm not going to go into any, any more detail other than that. We'll talk about a few things in, in my message that pertains to what has come before already. But I'm going to read the passage, Acts 14, 1 through 7, and then I'll pray for our time, and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about what God has for us today. Acts chapter 14, verse 1 says this, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derb and cities in Lycaonia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask the Holy Spirit to come now and open our hearts and open our minds to receive it, Lord. Convict us, comfort us, show us what we need to do, Father, how we need to respond as we travel through these seven verses and beyond today. Open our hearts, O Lord. Bless this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a very simple flow to the text I just read. It's very, very, very simple, and, and it's very familiar to us if you look at it. Ever since the church in Antioch laid hands on Paul and Barnabas and <clears throat> excuse me, sent them on their journey, <clears throat> there's this theme that marks their stay in each city, a common theme that marks their stay in each city, and we see that played out today. The first thing they do is they go and they find the local synagogue. And they proclaim what God is doing, <clears throat> that he's doing an unbelievable work in their midst, that through believing in Jesus Christ, that they can be forgiven of their sin and be freed from the bondage of sin and death. They preach the gospel. They go into the synagogues, they preach the gospel. And whether it's in great numbers of unnamed people or whether it's the Roman head of a government named Sergius Paulus, people believe. And they rejoice, and they glorify the word of the Lord, and lives are forever changed. But there's always something very odd that happens. 
something that you wouldn't necessarily think would occur when good news is proclaimed. People resist this message. People resist this message of, of God's grace in their life. They're like, yeah, we hear that, but we don't need it. And really, it's really nothing short of demonic. We know that when the gospel is proclaimed, that Satan is trying to get a foothold, that, that he seeks to devour. Satan has been defeated. He will not prevail, but he seeks to get a foothold in, and he stirs up division. We see another theme today as well in our passage. Before they eventually leave, when they are persecuted or they hear word of persecution, they leave. Paul and Barnabas, this time in this passage, today, they double down. It says that they stayed for a long time and they continued to speak boldly for the Lord. In short, they persevere. They persevere. They doubled down and they persevered. This, this text is small, and it's a bit of a transitional text. The, the text that preceded it, that, that Sam chopped up into two hunks, and the, the, the text coming up next week are much longer texts, same type of, of template, but there's a fuller expression of what's going on, a little bit more drama, seemingly, in those two stories that came before and came after. But essentially what's going on in our text today, and really through the, throughout the book of Acts and really throughout Scripture, but what we see today is faithfulness to gospel ministry in spite of op- opposition and the ultimate effect that that has. So that's eventually where we're going to get, is is we're going to talk about perseverance. We're going to talk about faithfulness to gospel ministry in spite of opposition. But let's let's first talk about verse 1, where it talks about they believed. What did they believe? It says that, that a great number of both the Jews and the Greeks believed. When or if you read, I suggest you go back and read beginning in chapter 13 where these missionary journeys begin. Um, it's, it's amazing. It's remarkable to me as I read through them this week how many times the word, word, is used, meaning the word of God. Like, like in our passage today, it says the word of grace. Now, if you go through there and you circle the, the number of times the word is mentioned, it's remarkable, 8, 9, 10, 11 times in these two chapters. Or if it's not the word, word, it's the number of times that Scripture is quoted or, or that it's being preached or proclaimed. It's, it's all over the text. As you may imagine, it is. That's the point of why Paul and Barnabas are going out on these journeys is to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the word. So it's not surprising, but as I read through, it just struck me how, how, how often it's mentioned, the word, the, the word, word is mentioned. And here's what I want to say about this. And it's, again, this is very obvious, but it's things like this that we forget there's power in the Word of God. There just is. There's power in the Word of God. It's through the proclaiming, the proclamation of the Word of God, that the Holy Spirit moves in the hearts of people and the gift of faith is imparted and people are saved. There's power in the Word of God. One of my favorite psalms has become Psalm 119. It's a long one. It's 176 verses. And, and the NIV Study Bible <clears throat> says that Psalm 119 is a devotional on the Word of God. So if you're looking for a devotional, I highly recommend Psalm, one, Psalm 119. It's actually broken up into short, uh, short verses, six, eight verses 
a uh, total of 174, but I recommend them. And there's all but about a half a dozen of those verses that mention the Word of God in some way, shape, or form, whether it's law, commandments, precepts, whatever it might. It's referring, every, almost every single verse is referring to the Word in some way. But listen to what the psalmist of Psalm 19 says about his relationship to the Word of God. I'm going to mention just a half a dozen, or maybe four of these. He says this, Open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wondrous things in your law, in your word. Hide not your commandments from me, Lord. Elsewhere it says, incline my heart to your testimonies, Lord. And my favorite, I will run in the way of your commandments, for you have set my heart free. I love that. I will run in the way of your commandments. I'm just going to run and get in the way of them. Let them knock me over and do whatever the word's going to do to me. I'm going to run in the way of them. I wonder if you and I have that same relationship with the word of God. I wonder. The psalmist seems to believe there's power in the word of God. And you see that replete in Psalm 119. So there's power in the word of God. There's power in the proclamation of the word of God. There's power in the reading of the word of God. That's why you hear it so much here whether it's just read straight out of Scripture or prayed through like Drew did or mentioned or referred to, the Word of God has power. So what does it mean when the text says they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed? What does that mean, such a way? Does does the messenger need to be some great orator? Well, let's hope not. Let's hope not or I would be more nervous than I typically am coming up here. When it says they spoke in such a way, it's not that they spoke with such eloquence and mastery that people were talked into belief, because that's not how the kingdom of God works. That's, That's not how we enter into the kingdom of God, is by being talked into it. Salvation happens through a deep work in our soul. It happens through a deep work in the soul of a human being who is lost, dead in their sin. And the Holy Spirit shines a light on that sin and wakes us up, turns the light on. Romans says we are dead in our sin. Dead people don't do things. Dead people can't respond until the Holy Spirit comes in and wakens us up, quickens us to who Jesus is, who our sin is, who Jesus is. And what follows then is a life of what? Submission to Jesus. And it begins through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit working. In 1999, Billy Graham came to town. Most of you probably know who he is. If you don't, you can Google him. He came to town in 1999, and God had been working in my heart that year in particular. A couple of pretty significant life events were occurring and that God was getting my attention with. And Kim and I, she was about seven months pregnant with our twins, we went to the America Center downtown to Billy Graham, to the Billy Graham crusade. And And I don't think I told Kim at that time, I have since, I believe, I fully expected to go that night and get saved. Had the anticipation. I knew what these things were about, and and I I just felt God had been working, but I felt like I I needed Billy to push me over the edge. I needed that thing that clicked in my mind and in my heart that finally got me to, to go forward to accept Jesus and to submit to Jesus Christ. I was expecting that 
to happen. So we go and we climb to the far reaches, my poor pregnant wife, to the far, we probably took an elevator, but to the far reaches of the America Center. And they did all the things that they do at a Billy Graham crusade. And guess what happened? Nothing. Nothing. I didn't get saved. I didn't have some emotional response and some mountaintop experience. Uh, the message wasn't particularly moving. I went back and looked at it on YouTube this week, and it still isn't. I mean, that's nothing against Billy Graham. He, he had seen better days before then, but it has nothing to do with, with the Reverend Billy Graham. But I didn't get saved. It was like I was looking for this renowned preacher of the gospel to communicate the word in such a way that I got saved. And that's not how it works. People got saved that night, to be sure. But it wasn't because of how powerful Billy Graham was. For some people, maybe he was. But the Spirit moved in the word that night for some folks. Just not in my heart. Not in that way. Not that night. It wouldn't have been until a year or so later through the faithful preaching of the gospel that penetrated my dark heart through a much lesser-known man of God, that my heart was opened to the truth of the gospel, and God saved me. This man would become my pastor, my brother in Christ, my discipler, and my friend. His name is Slade Johnson. He's retired now and living in Georgia. But I remember so vividly sitting in that church. I can see where I was in that church, which is now a Jewish synagogue, ironically. Sitting in that church, and it was as if every sermon was geared right towards me. If you've ever had the experience of feeling like you're the only one in the room, I had that often. Speaking in such a way just means Paul was preaching the gospel message he preached in chapter 13. After they read in the synagogue, what they do in the synagogues, they, they read from the law and the prophets, and they did this, and they asked Paul and they asked Barnabas, they said, they said, hey brothers, if you have a word of encouragement, will you come say it? And Paul's like, Barnabas, sit down, I got this. And he goes on, and he goes on, and he goes on for quite some time. And what he does is, is he gives a sermon that really is just the story of God in the history of the people of Israel and how God's promises to them are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He basically took the law and the prophets that they read from and he blew it open. He said, let me explain you what this is about. It's like Jesus on the road to Emmaus where he sidles up next to the guys and he's like, let me explain to you what's going on here and how I'm seen everywhere in Scripture because after all, I am the word. And I came here to dwell among you and save you. And it's a message proclaiming, again, the forgiveness of sins through Jesus, that if you believe, you will be, you will be free. As I said, the reason there's power in the Word of God and the Spirit is, is in the Word of God is because Jesus is the Word of God. John, my, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. If you want to draw near to Christ... If you want to draw near to Christ, whether you've never been saved, whether you've never submitted to Jesus, or whether you've been a, a Christian for decades and you're just struggling, you want to draw near to God, draw near to his word. James says, if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Do what the psalmist says, put yourselves in the path of the word of God. 
Read it, study it, memorize it, sit under the faithful preaching of it, be discipled in it. I guarantee you the, tra- the Holy Spirit will transform you. He will. God works through the power of the, of, the, of the gospel, of the word. And when we are exposed to the word of God and the Holy Spirit does his work, he will bring conviction and he will bring comfort as needed, as necessary. Church, how is God revealing himself through his word to you? How is he doing that? How is he doing it tonight? How is he doing it in previous Sunday evenings? How is he doing it when you're reading it, when you're studying it? Studying it? Remember when you're listening to it? How is he working? What's he doing in your story right now? Because that's what Paul unpacked. The history of Israel and what God had been doing through his promises. God is working in your stories. And I know some of your stories. There's a lot of hurt and there's a lot of pain in all of our stories. It doesn't matter who we are. God is working through that pain. He's working in those trials, in those hardships. He's working in our weakness. What is he doing? That, that year of the Billy Graham crusade, that year, it was late October, but that year was a very tumultuous year in my life. Several things happened where God was getting my attention. I didn't see it at the time. There's something inherent in trials and persecution that creates space for God to work. That's what he's doing. He's getting our attention. For some of you, he's getting your attention. For some of you, he's got your attention. For some of us, we're like, I got it. I got it, God. I'm going to handle it. I'm just going to ignore it. I'm not going to let anybody know about it, but I got it. I believe, church, that God has a word of grace for you today. I believe that he wants to show you how he's working in his life, how we can be faithful to gospel ministry in spite of our trials. We're going to come back to this at the end of our time today, but I want you to lean into that because that's where we're going to end up today. There was opposition to the word of God. They preached it. People believed it. And there was opposition to the word. Unbelievers stirred things up. They poisoned their minds. The city was divided. They wanted to stone Barnabas and Paul. But what what were they opposed to? They were opposed to God's grace. One commentator says this about this. He says, They were mad enough to kill the missionaries over the good news that God extends unmerited kindness to all who turn to him by placing their faith in Christ. Grace tends to either give people an unspeakable sense of relief and joy or it produces hostility and anger because, listen, because the default mode of the human heart is works-based righteousness. That's why people generally either embrace or oppose it, embrace grace or oppose it. Here's what we do. We tell God, I got it. I don't need you. I can handle this on my own, Lord. I don't need to submit to you, Jesus. I don't need you. I'm a good enough person. Do your thing for the people that need it. I don't need it. That's what we say. That's, that's works-based righteousness, thinking we can work our way to God. Church, that's exhausting, and it's prideful. And it's no way to live a life. It doesn't work. It only ends up in vanity. Trying to flourish in this life by doing things your own way doesn't work. It always ends up in futility and emptiness without Jesus. 
Yet in spite of this opposition, Paul and Barnabas, as we said, they doubled down. They stayed for a long time and they continued to preach boldly and the Lord shows up. Surprise, surprise. The Lord shows up in the midst of the opposition. The Lord, it says, bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders. This is what God does. As I said, we see the faithfulness to gospel ministry in, in, in spite of opposition. And what I want to do is I want to draw out is how God is always present and working in that opposition, in our trials, in our pain, and how in the midst of them, we too, in the midst of our trial, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our temptation, in the midst of our addiction, in the midst of our relational problems, we can see signs and wonders. But I want to talk a minute about persecution, because if we're honest to what's going on here and in this section of Scripture and really in all of Acts, we need to talk about persecution for a minute because these are the waters they're swimming in. And so we can't just ignore this, this fact about persecution. And in fact, in Timothy, the letter that Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, Paul writes this to Timothy. He goes, you, Timothy, you followed my teachings. You followed my conduct, my aim in life and my faith. You followed my patience and my love and my steadfastness and my persecutions and my sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, in Iconium, and in Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. And then he says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Here's what I want to say about this. The idea of being persecuted for our faith is a foreign concept to us. I'm sorry to burst some of your bubbles, perhaps. I hope not. But we just don't experience it in our context. We may think that we do, but we really don't. It's not something that we just experience in our Western cultural context, and specifically in our West County cultural context. I'm not saying it never happens, because it does. It's just not common. Chris and I were, were discussing this a few weeks ago in our discipleship. We're studying through First Peter, which has a few things to say about suffering and persecution, uh, suffering for our faith and, per, and persecution for our faith and suffering in general. And I told Chris, I said, it's, if, if I'm honest with this, I, I, and I was a little embarrassed to say, I don't, I've never been persecuted for my faith. How do we deal with this? How do we just honestly engage this text? We can pull out all kinds of, of interesting, great things that will speak to our hearts, but how do we deal with the fact that we don't, we're not persecuted? We call ourselves believers, but we're in a context where it just doesn't happen. And Chris said two great things. I'm going to pass these on to you. He said, first of all, we should thank God that we're not. We should thank the Lord that he has blessed us and he's put us in a context where we're not persecuted for our faith. And the second thing is, he said, we should pray for those who are. That is so helpful. That is so good. My brother exhorted us when I felt guilty, which is how we often, we talk about these. We all, we've all talked about these before, probably in our discipleship, in our small groups, probably as we're preaching. And, and it brings at times shame and guilt. And we just end up talking about it and doing nothing when really we need to live a life of gratitude and prayer. That's what we need to be doing. But as Paul says to Timothy, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. 
We like to claim promises in Scripture, but that's not one we like to claim too often. Well, perhaps if we're not feeling some level of resistance in our Christian walk, maybe we should desire, or maybe we should, should assess our desire to live a godly life. Maybe we look a little bit too much like the world. Maybe we're not as set apart as we think we are. I think that's just something we need to think about. Not to, not to condemn, to convict, or to judge anybody, because I'm talking to me as well, but maybe we need to consider this promise of God. Where do we sit with living a holy life? Living a godly life? So these are the waters that they are swimming in. And, and while we may not experience persecution, we should all resonate, and we do, with how difficult it is to remain faithful to gospel ministry in spite of opposition, especially when that opposition comes from just the everyday struggle of life. P Paul went through a lot in his experience, but not all of it was persecution specifically for the gospel. Paul went through a lot of trials that you can link it to that, but it wasn't all out, hey, he's preaching the gospel, let's go get him. He went through a lot of trials. Scripture talks about, and Jesus talks about, how we can live an abundant life, and we're like, you're right. Abundant life, right? Let's be honest. That's just far from a lot of our realities. This idea of abundant life. We're just trying to survive, many of us. We're, we're just trying to, to wake up. We're, we're happy if we just wake up every morning and we can get out of bed and function like a normal human being, and that doesn't matter whether we're a believer or not. That's a, that's a common struggle for all of us. I believe that God has a word for us today. I believe that God has a word of grace for us today. And this is what it is. In spite of how hard life gets, regardless of what you're going through right now, the thing that comes to your mind, the thing that you brought in this room, the thing that cannot get out of your mind, cannot get out of your heart, you're not going to run away from it. It's going to be there when you walk out the doors, get home. And for some of us, it's coming. And we know it's coming, but we don't know what it is. But it's coming. When that happens, when life gets hard, God says, I'm there with you. I'm in it with you. I'm present. I'm in it with you. That Jesus became flesh and walked among us, that's what he did. And that's what he does. And he says it's worth it. Your pain and your struggle and your trial is worth it. And the reason it's worth it is because, obviously, of what's to come, of our hope that we have. But it's also what God is doing in the here and now. Because he's doing something. And that's the key, is what is God doing here and now? And what does he want to do in you and through you? Because, church, listen up, life is short. I know that's cliche-ish. But it is. It's hard to grasp. And, and outside like an old man, especially when you're young, you don't realize how short it is. But I'm telling you, it's weird. The older you get, the shorter it is. It goes fast. We're only here for a brief moment. Our life is a vapor, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says. And for the believer, for all of us, there's no wasted moment, or there shouldn't be. For Paul, there was no wasted moment, no wasted trial, and no wasted hardship. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. I'm going to talk about this for a few minutes. 
When we get to chapter 18 in the, verse, in the, in the book of Acts, uh, Paul gets to the city of Corinth in that chapter, but he writes to the church, and there's a New Testament letter. There's two of them, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, it says this. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I want to say three things about this today. The first is I think this is further confirmation and a reminder that faith is a gift from God. We can't conjure up faith. Faith is a gift from God and rests in the power of God. Romans 10 says that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But faith, as we said, is also a gift. And we need to exercise that gift. We need to use that gift. You don't receive a gift from someone and just put it in the corner. You use it. Hopefully. Billy Graham said in that very message, faith is a commitment. Faith is a commitment. It's it's God's commitment to us that he will be with us, that he is our God, and that we will be his people. And it's our commitment to him that we would place our faith in him that looks like daily trust and obedience to God. The second thing is, and and we've touched on this, it's not how eloquent the speaker is, which is reassuring to me. In fact, Paul says, I didn't come to you proclaiming the word of God with some lofty speech or wisdom. It it wasn't in plausible or persuasive words of wisdom. Now, we won't go into a big deal of it or a great deal of it, but the context of this passage is speakers would come into the city of Corinth, great orators, and they would be very dramatic and very flowery in their presentation of what they were trying to tell the people very dramatic, trying to prey on feelings and emotions, and Paul doesn't do that. That's why he makes that, that comment. He goes, I just came preaching the gospel because there's power in the gospel. In fact, Billy Graham was probably more eloquent than Paul. Paul just came, and he preached Christ, and he preached Christ crucified, and he unpacked all the glory that that meant. It's Jesus The third thing is that this message came with power. But what did that power look like? Well, we said it's Holy Spirit power to save. It's the power of God in his word to convict us and to save us. But Paul wasn't just some itinerant preacher bouncing around the countryside. He didn't just come to project an image of himself, but rather of Jesus and the presence of Jesus. Paul was eloquent, or Paul may not have been eloquent, but what he was is he was with them. Paul was present. And this is no small thing, church. Paul was in Corinth for a year and a half, Acts says. He had a job. He was a, he was a tent maker. He had roots. Acts 18 said that in that year and a half, Paul taught them the word of God. 
It also says he preached in the synagogues to the Jews and the Greeks. So he was continuing to labor to preach to the hard hearts of Jews and Greeks, but he also discipled believers in what it meant to live out Jesus Christ crucified. Philippians 2, he tells the Philippian church to work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. I think that's what he did when he taught them the word of God and discipled them. And during this time, Paul was with them for this year and a half. He was with them in trials and weaknesses. He was with them in their struggling marriages and in their struggling, struggling singleness. He was with them in their relational problems. He was with them in their sickness. He was with them when their babies were born and when they lost their babies. He was with them in their addictions and their temptations. He was with them when they doubted their faith. Paul was with them. Because Jesus is with us. Paul is long gone, but Jesus is here. And he is moving and he is with you. There's power in perseverance. And there's power in perseverance as the family of God. Perseverance isn't done in isolation. This is a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit that saves us but also sanctifies us. There's power in sanctification. That just means that that word sanctification, this means we're growing in our faith. Positionally, we are saved and God sees us as he sees Jesus Christ, but we still live in the flesh and we still sin. And God's growing us into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. And we do that as we love God and as we love each other. And what that looks like is to be present in one another's lives, to be humble, to be vulnerable, to be transparent, to show our weakness in the midst of our trials. And and why would we do that? Why on earth would we do this? Because that sounds messy to me. I don't know about you, but family is messy, but it's worth it. And why is it worth it? Because God chooses to grow us and transform us. This is how he does it, to sanctify us. You don't need to turn there, but in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 12, he says this about the trial that he is going through. He calls it a thorn. Paul says he has a thorn in his his side, that God has given him this thorn. And and he he tells the Corinthian church, he says, "Um, um, I, I plead with the Lord to get rid of my thorn. And in the midst of trials and thorns, God said this. He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Listen, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast, Paul says, all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, for the sake of Christ then, not only can I endure my trials, you know it's coming, I can be content in my trials. I can be content in my weakness and my insults, in my hardships, in my persecution, in my calamities. Not only can I get through it, I can be content in it. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Why do we persevere? And why do we persevere with one another? Because God's grace is sufficient, and that's all we need. 
It's all God's grace. Our faith is supernatural. The word of God is supernatural. Salvation is supernatural. All that we talk about, this is something I forget all the time because, because I, I, I'm, I'm more of a, a you know, linear thinker, point A to point Z and everything that comes in between. And, and I forget this is, this is a supernatural work. There's a realm here that we f- don't fully understand. And there's something to be said for that. There's something for us to, to ask God to help and open up our heart to, this, to the, the wonder and the awe and the majesty of the supernatural work that's going on around us. There's also an understanding that there is, there's things happening in, in the spiritual realm that are things that we don't know about, that we don't want to know about. Because that's where Satan is working. But there, church, there's a grittiness as well to our faith. Can we just put aside the fake Christianity? Can we just put aside everything's fine, everything's okay, because it's not? Can we stop pretending? There's a grittiness to our faith. There's a tenacity to being a Christian. There's a realness to being a Christian. Perseverance is hard work. It's a Jesus kind of love. It's sacrificial. And look what happens when we love one another like like this, when we're in one another's lives and in the trials and all of this, when we put ourselves out there in all of our imperfections and all of our faults and our warts, what happens when we love one another and we persevere with one another in all of this, when we choose to stick it out and be in it with each other like Paul was in it with the church, when we serve each other and we sacrifice What happens? What happens when we do that? Jesus says, by this tenacious, self-sacrificing, gritty, persevering in trials, this faithful gospel ministry in spite of opposition, by this kind of love, this is the kind of love that Jesus had for us. Jesus didn't skip through life. Read the Gospels. He didn't just skip and dance through through life because he was God. He was also man. He endured everything that we did. Everything we go through, Jesus went through it as well. He understands, he resonates, and he says, this is the kind of love I have for you. And when you exhibit this kind of love, all people will know that you are my disciples when you love one another this way. We long to see supernatural signs and wonders, don't we? We become awed with the the shiny and the fancy stuff and we want to see signs and wonders. We think that that's what's going to do the trick in our faith. We think that that's going to strengthen our faith or it's going to prove God's existence and prove God's power in our lives. And so we look for these signs and these wonders and, and we need to look to Jesus and to Paul and realize that power comes through humility. Power comes through weakness and sacrifice. Think about your salvation. Think about when God saved you. If you're a believer here today, think, think about when God saved you. There was, there was a moment where you realized, I am undone. I cannot do this. Could have been a dramatic thing. Could have been not so dramatic. Could have been a, a gradual dawning as it was with me. But at some point, you come to the realization that, uh-oh, it's not right, and I can't help myself, and I need the Lord Jesus and you submit, and you bow the knee, and you make a public profession, and it's beautiful. You were humble in that moment. That was a moment of humility in your life. 
The essence of the gospel is humility. The essence of the gospel is Jesus, Philippians 2, coming down and being a man. God himself stepping down and becoming humble enough to be a human being in the form of a baby. It's like we forget that when we're saved and we're humbled, we're like, okay, I've got it now. Now I can just live my life however I want to live it. But we need to remember and embrace that the trials in our lives, God's getting our attention and he's humbling us. We need to submit to Jesus all over again every single day. We need to love him. We need to love one another in the midst of the messiness and the struggles of life. And when we do that, that kind of love that people will know us by, that's a sign and a wonder all to itself to a world that's around us. Maybe not the sign and the wonder that we want to see, but that's the sign that we get to display to the world. As we close today, and band, you guys can come on up. Church, God has already granted you a sign and a wonder. He has saved you. He's brought you from death to life. If you're a believer, he's performed a miracle in your life and he continues to sustain you every single day. This is what God has done. This is what he is doing. He's in it with you. And you get the privilege to show your miracle and to show signs and wonders to you, to those around you. We get to go. We get to love God and love people with the very grace of God that he provides us. And we get to be strengthened by that very grace. I'm going to close by reading from another one of, it's not one of Paul's letter, this is Peter, but it's from 1 Peter chapter 5. I want you to listen to this, and then we're going to go into our response time, and I'll explain response time when, when we get there. But 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 4 through 11, Peter says this. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you. What that word clothe means is it's like tying a knot around you, tying, tying around you as a knot. And what is it we tie around ourselves as a knot? He says, humility. Clothe yourself, all of you, all of you with humility towards one another. For God, listen, God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Church, there's not a whole lot the scripture talks about that God opposes. Satan's one of them. He opposes opposes the proud. We can be a very prideful, stubborn people. And he says, Humble yourselves toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, because he's in it with you. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Pray for them. And after you have suffered a little while, he says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself Restore, 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that we can endure and not just endure and not just persevere. We can thrive. We can flourish. We can live an abundant life. And we can do so with contentment. And what that looks like to a lost world is so attractive. Father, use us in the midst of our pain. Use us in the midst of our struggles, in our broken relationships, in our sickness, in our I don't know what's coming questions, Lord. Use us. Church, spend the next few minutes as the band plays over you and just think about that. Whatever it is that you're going through. I know, I know there's a lot of joy in the room as well. There's a lot of joy in the room and, and our lives are mixtures, aren't they, of, of joy and sadness and trials. So, so we're, we're, a, we're a dichotomy. But spend the next few minutes and, and ask God, God, what are you doing in the midst of my pain? What are you doing in the midst of these trials that you've given me and these struggles? What, what, Lord, what are you doing? What do you want to, how do you want to use me? Give me contentment. See what God does. And know that your church is in this with you. That's why we're here, is to love you and to pray with you and support you in any way we can. So as the band plays over you, spend the next few minutes meditating on that, asking God, what is he doing? For some of us, it might be the very first time that we realize God's doing something in our heart and I have to respond to him. That light is going on. Salvation has come. The day of the Lord has come for us. For some of you, that is happening. That's working. And if that, if that is, then we would love to talk to you about that. If you have questions, we'd love to talk to you about that. Church, spend some time. Think, pray, meditate. Seek the Lord.